Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I am uh, just absolutely thrilled to be up here tonight. Uh, for the bulk of you who don't know me, there's actually a handful of familiar faces, but for the bulk of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Chris Beatty, as he mentioned. Uh, this is my lovely wife, Vivian. Been married for six and a half years. Um, we have two little boys. You've probably seen them running around. We actually just found out here this last month. Uh, we got a third coming here in September, so... Super excited about that. <clears throat> uh, well, I'm batting clean up in the uh, Rob Israel guest speaker tour. Uh, I think I'm fourth up. Uh, and my parents are up here in the front row, and they made the trip out, and uh, thrilled to have them. A little bit of background on myself. Uh, I grew up in Simi Valley. Uh, went to Christian school all growing up. Uh, Grace Brethren, K through 12. Uh, from there, I went out to Moore Park College for two years, and then out to uh, Santa Clarita uh, to the Master's College for... Uh, my last two. Well, uh, uh, Pastor Brett kind of mentioned it, but this actually came about in a funny manner. Uh, I was introducing myself to Rob. I hadn't really spent a great deal of time with him and uh, was asking him a question uh, to which he was kind enough to indulge me. Well, at the end of that conversation, uh, instead of following up with uh, Chris, thanks, it's nice to meet you, go on your way, uh, he says, hey, do you want to speak? Well, you can imagine my surprise. Uh, I felt a little bit like a Looney Tunes character. I think my jaw hit the floor. Uh, and in my surprise state, I must have said yes, because here I am tonight. Um, let's see here. So I took a look. I was trying to figure out uh, what topic I was going to speak on tonight. And uh, as some of you guys are aware, there's a holiday coming up this week. No, I'm not referring to uh, that cheesy Hallmark holiday this Saturday. Honey, I didn't mean that. We're doing stuff. No, uh, I'm referring to President's Day. This is, after all, Calvary Chapel Godspeak, and I felt it was my duty as a member here to uh, honor our country's great leaders. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Before I get going too far, let's uh, pray real quick. Uh, our Father, thank you so much for uh, just this opportunity and this evening, and uh, just so excited to be here, Lord. I pray that you uh, move through this message and uh, inspire us, inspire uh, all of us to rise up and to lead and to, uh, to learn from the example that's in front of us, Lord. I pray that I articulate uh, your word uh, in a clear manner, and uh, just bless this evening. In your name, amen. amen. Well, <clears throat> I used to be a voracious reader growing up. I uh, loved fiction books. used to read a lot of Tolkien. I uh, loved Crichton and Clancy. Uh, just was fascinated by them. I was even that kid that did all the assigned reading when we were in high school. Um, I still love to push through a Grisham book here every now and then, but my fascination with fictional characters is actually given away to, uh, to real people. Uh, now, I s recently I've read uh, probably a handful of books on Abraham Lincoln, as well as a big one on uh, George Washington. I'm actually hoping to uh, get through that Louis Zamperini one here soon. Um, and I just, I love to read. Uh, it's harder to do now with kids. Uh, every time I sit down with a book, they're usually pulling on my legs and... Uh, Stealing my time. I love it. It's just hard to read now. Um, but while I was prepping for this uh, sermon tonight, I ran across an interesting quote, and I think uh, it's applicable, and it's from our uh, 33rd president, Harry Truman. And he says, Readers of good books, particularly books of biography and history, are preparing themselves for leadership. Not all readers become leaders, but all leaders must be readers. Oop, before I get going... There we go. Somewhere there's a computer teacher happy. I figured that out. 
Well, the study of leadership is uh, quickly becoming a passion of mine. Uh, I recently finished taking a graduate-level course through my employer on leadership that was modeled after our Army's uh, West Point uh, Leadership Academy. It was an interesting class on several levels, um, and has really served to accelerate my interest in leadership. Did you guys know that leadership and the study of leadership is actually a half a billion dollar industry in the United States? Everyone, companies, churches, etc., want to know how to do leadership. It's a huge topic. Everyone needs it. But how do we do it? We as Christians actually have incredible excerpts and examples in front of us. Would you all agree that the world is actually looking for leaders? We're constantly facing some crisis in one way or another. It can be seen on a macro level at the global and national stage. It can be seen in our state level and the politicians that we elect. We can see it in our professional lives at the workplace. This is where my interest was actually most peaked. Um, we also see it in our children's schools and our classrooms. But are we as Christians, members of this church, called to be leaders? Well, I hope you all answer that with a resounding yes. Because that calling is not simply limited to pastors or elders or deacons or Bible study leaders, but also to parents, friends, and anyone else that someone might look up to. Leadership doesn't have to carry a formal title. We all have been given gifts within the body uh, that are used to edify, excuse me, we've all been given gifts that are meant to edify the body. Therefore, it's not a stretch to say that each and every one of us is responsible to lead. So I guess the next question then is if we are all called to lead is what does it look like? I did some homework and found what was known as the strong natural leader model. This is the worldview on what to look for when you're trying to hire a CEO or that guy that's going to be in charge of your corporate uh, boardroom. And here's a, you can jot these down if you have pen and paper, uh, seven characteristics uh, that the world would typically look for in a leader. They're a visionary. They're always looking towards the future and trying to plan. They're action-oriented. They're someone who comes up with ideas and implements them. They're courageous. They have a high risk tolerance, and they aren't simply managers. They're energetic. These are your type A personalities and tend to be more driven. They're egocentric. They believe in themselves, and they feel that they have all the answers. They like problems. They want to try and solve them. They have an intolerance of incompetence. They expect competency at every level, and they believe that they will elevate their organization to a level of excellence. And lastly, they believe themselves to be indispensable. They think that without them there, the whole house of cards is going to crumble. So we have these seven qualities that the world tends to look for in a leader. But if you wanted to know what the Bible had to say about leadership, where would you go? And what does it say? What, did, what leadership lessons excuse me, can we glean from the Bible and how do we apply them? I hope that by the end of this evening, you know where to go and you know how to apply them. Well, we can look in the Old Testament, and we have leadership lessons from Moses. He led the nation of Israel, some two and a half strong, for 40 years, uh, with varying degrees of success. His father-in-law, Jethro, uh, helped him in a major way by teaching him how to delegate, as well as teaching him the informal concept of span of control. We can look at David. He was known as a man after God's own heart. He was the second king of Judah. He did many good things, but for every positive leadership moment that he has, he seems to follow it up with a bonehead move. 
Now we could look to the New Testament and we could point to Christ as being the leader. He took a ragtag group of 12 men and he leads them. He changes the course of history through his actions. He modeled leadership and trained up his disciples to go out into the world after he leaves. He speaks confidently before the rulers and the authorities of his day. And he also had a firm grasp on scripture and he knew how to apply it to combat his enemies. He clearly led by example. But if we wanted to find a Christian model, somebody that we could point to as possessing leadership qualities, well, there may not be a more ideal person than Paul. He was an educated man to be sure, but he identifies himself as an apostle, but the apostles didn't necessarily readily identify with him. By all accounts, he was a diminutive man, short in nature, hunched over, blinding, and likely badly scarred from the repeated attempts to stone him. And yet, there is no doubt that Paul is a leader. And I don't think that there's anywhere better to see that than Acts 27. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And if you brought pen and paper, uh, I did make up a pretty low-tech PowerPoint that you can uh, jot nine qualities down. Uh, And I'm going to show you nine qualities that Paul demonstrates for us to grasp onto for those who are interested in upping their leadership game. Excuse me. All right, Acts 27. Well, Paul had actually, let me give you a background first. Paul had actually just come back from his third missionary journey. He had traveled to Jerusalem to drop off money to the saints that he'd collected during his travels there. While there, he is warned by Agabus that he would, once he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be put into chains and be made a prisoner. Prior to this occasion, Paul had actually only ever been in prison one other time. By the time his ministry is completed, and by completed, I mean he's beheaded, uh, he's going to go to jail a total of four times and spend six years in totality. But prior to this occasion, prior to the end of Acts, he's only been in jail once. And the reason he's in jail is because he was accused by the Jews of proclaiming Christ to be the risen king. Uh, The chapter indicates that he spent two years here in jail in Caesarea, which is the Roman military's port of operation just west of uh, Jerusalem. Finally, uh, oh, excuse me, he pleads to have his case heard, but at the end of Romans 26, uh, King Agrippa finally listens to him and says uh, that he can have his case heard because Paul is arguing that they can't simply hold him uh, just to keep the peace, which is what's been going on so far. So it's decided that he'll sail to Rome uh, to go see Caesar, and that's where we open in chapter 27. I'm going to take you on a journey with me. I'm going to ask you to come alongside Luke as we watch as Paul gets on this ship and demonstrates leadership. Um, So we see Paul coming up. He's walking up the gangway of this ship. He's got his ankles and his wrists bound by shackles, probably shuffling along. He was just a nameless prisoner at the bottom of the boat. Verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustine Regiment. So entering a ship of Adramatine, which is a port city in Asia Minor, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. So the first two verses here set the scene for us. Paul is a prisoner on this ship. And on this ship, there's a captain and a first mate and probably several sailors bearing some degree of rank. And then we have this Roman centurion who is a commander of 100 men in the Augustine Regiment. 
This was named for Augustus or Caesar Augustus. Julius was the guy who was in charge of protecting the guy, Caesar. It's probably fair to say that Julius was an outstanding soldier. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't, he wouldn't be in this spot. Now, the text doesn't say whether or not the full complement of 100 men joined Julius on this journey, but the text does indicate that at least a handful of them uh, joined him on the trip. So we have this chain of command, and at the very, very bottom of it is Paul, the prisoner. Verse 3. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Does anyone else find this fascinating? Stop with me for a second and let's read again. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and to receive care. After one day at sea, the head of the king's secret service detail lets this political prisoner have unsupervised shore leave to go hang out with his friends. This is profound. Paul was a political prisoner whose very presence has literally caused riots in the streets of Jerusalem. And after one day at sea, the commander of the royal guards lets him go. And this could not have been a decision that he made lightly. Because if Paul decides to turn this one-day trip into a two-day rager, it could very well have meant Julius's life. And he still lets him go. And so we reach our first principle of leadership. There we go. A leader is to be trusted. The Bible doesn't mention anywhere whether or not Julius and Paul had actually ever met. But, so we're left to assume that this is the first time they meet each other. And in that one day of travel, Paul was able to convince Julius that he would never do anything that would result in Julius's ultimate demise. In fact, some of you probably aren't sure if you'd want to hang it out that far from a family member. I've recently had that uh, experience. I've got a cousin who lives in Orange County, and uh, he's got a daughter who lives up here in Newberry Park with her mother. And uh, occasionally he would call to ask if it would be okay to stay overnight with us. And I struggled with that, to be honest with you, uh, because I never knew if uh, he had had trouble with addiction. So I never knew if he was newly clean, clean for a while, or if he had fallen off the boat. Some of you maybe have faced a similar situation. Maybe some of you haven't. But with that perspective in mind, uh, I'm amazed that Julius was willing to trust uh, Paul. But Paul approaches Julius and asks him if it would be all right to go visit friends of his. And Julius says yes. And there's only one reason why. And it's because he trusted Paul. What does it mean to trust when someone is convinced that you will do everything in your power for their good and nothing for their harm, they will trust you. I work for the Los Angeles Fire Department. I've spent the bulk of my career uh, in very busy assignments, and I can tell you how true this rings. I've worked for supervisors or captains that have had the credibility to send me into harm's way, and I go, even when it seems hairy. But I've also worked for captains that I don't trust as much, and on those days, I move a lot slower. When people are convinced that you will do everything in your power for their good and nothing for their harm, they will trust you. When the centurion was convinced that Paul had his best interests in heart, he lets him go. Paul had gained their trust. This is where all leadership starts. Gain their trust. A leader is able to convince everybody around them that it is their best interest that most concern them. And we see that Paul does come back. Julius' trust in Paul 
is validated here and then reaffirmed later in the chapter. Folks, if you miss all my other points tonight, but get this, if you want to be a leader in whatever your faculty in life is, show others that you can be trusted. Because someone who cannot be trusted, who cares only about their own personal interests, is no leader at all. The second characteristic of leadership that we'll see tonight is initiative. Leaders take the initiative. You can recognize leaders based on this one quality alone. Has anyone actually ever met someone who's bristling with initiative, who's not a leader or on the verge of becoming one? It's doubtful. Let's pick up again here in verse 4. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary when we sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had a ride off Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete of Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. I threw a map up here because I just mentioned a ton of cities. Um, So if you're trying to track the progress there, it should be up there. I know it's a little bit hard to read, so I apologize for that. But uh, coming back, the fast <clears throat> that is being referred to here in verse 9 is the Day of Atonement and bears a certain degree of significance in the Jew- Jewish sailing calendar because the winds here take on a particularly nasty quality between the end of September and the end of November. Their ship is getting nowhere fast. They've likely been fairly stagnant in the water for the last month or so, and they are now approaching winter. And here's where it gets interesting. It says, Paul admonish them, or Paul advised them. Advise them of what? Matters pertaining to Christ and to his ministry? No, verse 10. Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. On board, this ship are capable seasoned sailors, and nobody is saying anything about their plight. And in steps Paul to offer advice regarding their current progress and their future outcome. And instead of doing what most of us might likely do, he initiates a conversation and tells them, Hey guys, if we keep on keeping on, this won't end well. If we wanted to take a good hard look at initiative and see at this one quality and see what it's capable of, we could take a look at Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah was relentless with his drive and initiative. In fact, did you guys know that our United States Air Force models their leadership training on Nehemiah's life? He's an equally fascinating study for leadership qualities, but the main takeaway that I want to get from Nehemiah is his initiative. Leadership recognizes problems and it provides solutions to achieve results. This leads into our third point, which is that leaders use good judgment. A good leader is analytical. They understand that there's a calculated risk, but they assess and evaluate direction. Paul makes his speech. He takes his stand. Guys, we shouldn't continue on. There's an awful lot at stake here. We lose the ship. We lose the cargo. We lose our lives. Game over. The end. Thanks for playing. 
Verse 11, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than the things spoken by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So what does the captain of the ship do in this centurion commander, Julius? They take a straw poll of everybody that's on the ship, and they decide to press forward. And they ignore Paul's advice. They decide to press forward on this slow crawl of a journey towards Phoenix. Now, if trying to sail for a landlocked city in the middle of the United States doesn't validate Paul's opinion to their sailing expertise, then really what does? Phoenix is a city actually that's 40 miles away from Fair Havens, uh, but was better sheltered from the effects of winter. Verse 13, when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long, they rushed down from the land a violent wind called the Euroquillo. This is a uh, nor'easter which comes in, uh, uh, excuse me, off Palestine and Crete and blows that cold, hard winter wind down onto the Mediterranean Sea. We can actually probably best compare it to our uh, Santa Ana's, just a significantly colder uh, version of that. And this is exactly what Paul had predicted. His street cred is definitely on the rise here. Verse 15, And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat or skiff under control. Behind them, they used to drag a small boat that they would use in case of emergency or in case they had to uh, row into uh, port if the ship couldn't make it into a dock. Verse 17, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding a ship. It was a common thing back then to take ropes and to run it along the bottom side of the ship and then they would winch it down. This would keep all the tongue and groove boards that they had together, uh, and this was especially important as the ship rises up on these big waves and then comes crashing down. They didn't want this wooden boat to split asunder. Uh, and this process was known as frapping. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I love caffeine, I love coffee, and I used to work at Starbucks, uh, and I was inspired by this term. Um, so I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Starbucks probably derives their name from that, frapping, because frapping provides strength or caffeine among the chaotic waves of life. A bit of a stretch, I know, I'm sorry. All right. Less me, more the Bible. Here we go. All right. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. They were in a slow, or excuse me, they were trying to slow down their reckless momentum as they were heading along and threw in all four of their anchors and are trying to just drag along the bottom of the coast. They didn't want to become part of the shipping graveyard that is North uh, Africa. And go back, boop, down here. A lot of those ships tend to get driven down to that uh, bottom left corner of North Africa there. Verse 18, the next day as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. The reason that they're doing this is they're trying to drop weight. Perhaps New Year's had rolled around and their New Year's resolution was to get skinny again. They're just not that figure they once were. No, they're trying to raise up the ship's profile that they don't, so that they don't continue to take on water. And by doing so, by throwing over all the cargo, they're forfeiting their payday. 
And then they resort to throwing everything overboard that's not nailed down. They're in a serious, serious storm. They're getting swamped and crushed by the waves. Verse 20, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Everyone thinks that they're going to die. Remember, Paul had told them as much if they continued on their journey. And now they have realized the errors and the totality of their actions. And up stands Paul. Excuse me. And in that moment of realization, everyone is realizing that they should have trusted Paul. There's that theme again. Verse 21. When they had gone on a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not set sail from Crete and incurred this damage or loss. I imagine they probably weren't real thrilled with Paul's I told you so speech. But perhaps the captain of the ship is losing his credibility, maybe even his sanity by the second. And up stands Paul. He puts his leadership cloak on. This time he has the benefit of being an authority on the subject, which is actually our fourth characteristic of leadership. Oop. There it is. Yet now, verse 22, yet now I urge you to keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. This crisis had produced an undeniable leader in Paul. And in the midst of this despair, he tells them not to be concerned that every single one of them will be saved. And why is he so confident? Verse 23, for this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. He understands what's at hand. He understands his capabilities. And in the case of the apostle Paul, he has a word from God. And that's what sets spiritual leadership apart from everything else. We as Christians can speak confidently because we have a word from God. Now there's something to be said about speaking with authority. Jesus spoke with authority because he had the truth of God behind him. He spoke with authority when he cast out the demons. If you hope to be a leader, you need to know what you're talking about and speak confidently towards that end. And that's what we see Paul do here. He provides, uh, he has direct knowledge from God via an angel, and articulates that knowledge to the crew. We see then the fifth characteristic of a leader, and that's that he strengthens others. He makes everyone around him better. His confidence becomes the confidence of others. He provides hope for them so that they will have a future. And why? Because God told him so. Now the sixth characteristic kind of plays off this one. Uh, but I think it deserves its own line in the PowerPoint, and that's that a leader is enthusiastic. I saw a funny video while uh, preparing for this sermon uh, about, what, about a couple kids at what looks to be a Woodstock concert. And the first kid is up there dancing on a hill. He looks like Napoleon Dynamite, or me, at prom night, and he's just doing this thing with his hands and looks terrible. It's awful. But in rushes number two, a second mushroom-loving friend, and he's helping to showcase number one's dance moves. And he is enthusiastic. And he is just working it like there's no one within 100 miles. And number two's enthusiasm rallies this tepid crowd of onlookers. And this dance party of two becomes a full-blown movement with no less than 300 people. It's a funny video to watch. 
but it speaks to the power of enthusiasm. It's, excuse me. Enthusiasm is contagious when it's applied correctly. You cannot be a good leader and be a pessimist. These types of people suck the life out of their followers, and this group becomes passive and inactive. Don't be a pessimist. Paul was incredibly enthusiastic. He was warned in chapter 26 that he would be put into chains and made a prisoner, and yet he continues to march forward. He believes in the triumph of his cause, and he knows that no obstacle will diminish that goal. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says that God causes us always to triumph in Christ. Be enthusiastic. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Number seven is that a leader never compromises. They never compromise on their absolutes. Picking up again in verse 26. But we must run aground in a certain island. But when the 14th night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took some soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little further on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere in the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul says to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain on the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. The crew is trying to abandon the ship in the darkened night. And they're hoping that nobody notices them. They're starting to lower the skiff down into the water. And you can bet that Paul has everyone's attention at this point. And certainly their respect. He has proved himself trustworthy to the centurion when he came to the back, back to the boat. He proves himself trustworthy to the crew when the prediction played itself out correctly. And now he has predicted that they will all live, but that the ship will be lost. So far, everyone has survived this catastrophic storm that got them to this point, and they are rapidly appointing or approaching uh, the demise of the ship. I think it's to safe, safe to say that Paul is nailing it in the prediction department. But some of the ship's crew isn't so sure they're buying into his I had a dream speech. They have a different idea, but they're found out. And Paul has an absolute, and the absolute is this. God is going to get all the glory for this, He's going to spare all the lives, or he's going to spare none of them. It was that simple. There would be no compromising on God's and Paul's absolutes. You have to determine what your absolutes are going to be as a leader, and then never violate them, because Satan is always trying to get us to move that line just a little bit. Tax season is upon us, and it's true that nobody may know that the numbers that you give to your accountant in that phone interview are accurate. I think there's maybe a 1% that chance that the IRS will audit you, and that's if you're making some serious money to make it worth their while. But what are your internal absolutes? Do you have them? Especially when God is the only one that will ever know that your absolutes weren't absolutely absolute. Verse 32, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. 
The eighth principle for leaders, or yeah, the eighth principle for leaders is to focus on objectives and not obstacles. I can't imagine going 14 days without food. There was probably a good amount of food that was either washed overboard or thrown overboard when they were jettisoning all the cargo. <clears throat> they may have been also been terribly seasick and really not in the mood to take food. But 14 days is a long time. Heck, 14 hours is a long time. He tells them all to cheer up. The end is near. Eat up so you can make the swim and make use of the food that is still left because at the end of this, there's not going to be any food. There's not going to be a ship. You're all going to be saved and everything left on here, on this ship, is going to be at the bottom of the sea. So the ninth principle... Come back. All right. We don't need it. All right. I'll explain it. The last principle of leadership is that a leader leads by example. And that's our ninth and final point. Verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it off, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged, and they also took food for themselves. He leads by example. Although, to be fair, I can't imagine that it took a whole lot of encouragement to tell the guys who hadn't eaten for 14 days to break food. All right, we're going to push hard. We're almost done. Verse 36, all of them were encouraged and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship into it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They're all making a run for the beach. But striking, verse 41, but striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. And the, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. They've likely driven the ship into a giant sandbar, and waves from both seas are now crashing into it and starting to break up the boat. Verse 42, The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention. After all that they've been through and survived, they still wanted to kill all the prisoners. But Julius intervenes. Killing all of the prisoners would have included killing Paul. And you can imagine that Julius was a little bit leery of doing that and killing Paul, this guy who has conversations with angels of the Most High God. Last verse. And Julius commanded those that who commanded those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land and the rest should follow some on planks and others on various things from the ship and so it happened that they were all brought safely to land i suppose the last thing you could say about a leader is that he succeeds what an awesome biblical example of leadership a leader is to be trusted they show initiative they use good judgment. They speak with authority. They strengthen others. They're enthusiastic and optimistic. They never compromise on their absolutes. They focus on objectives, and they lead by example. Well, I hope that Paul's example of leadership can help transform the way we think about ourselves and our biblical responsibility as well to lead. Each and every one of us is called to lead. Look for those opportunities and rise up and be like Paul. Thank you so much for your time. Let me close this out with prayer and take off. 
Dear Lord, thank you so much for uh, just a wonderful evening and a chance to be up here and uh, just go through your word. What a just treasure it's been to uh, prepare for this sermon and uh, thank you so much. I pray that uh, this sermon uh, and your words and leadership has touched someone here. Um, <clears throat> help us to all be better leaders in our lives, in our workplace, with our family, with friends. Uh, just help us to be like Paul, Lord. Uh, thank you so much for the examples that are in front of us and uh, help us to apply them. In your name we pray. Amen.